You are listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's March 24th. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. That was President George W. Bush addressing the American people from the Oval Office in March 2003, 20 years ago this week. The U.S. invasion of Iraq set off a long, costly, and bloody conflict, the effects of which are still being felt around the world today. We recently asked a group of RAND experts about the complicated legacy of the Iraq War. They discussed lessons the U.S. military learned or didn't learn, what effect the conflict has had on the balance of power in the Middle East, how the war affected America's global reputation, and more. Jonathan Wong is the Associate Director of the Rand Arroyo Center's Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources Program and a former Marine Corps infantryman with two combat tours in Iraq. Wong described the multifaceted legacy of the war. For the U.S. military, the conflict demonstrated U.S. forces' tactical prowess, ingenuity, and considerable endurance. On the other hand, it showed the limits of that endurance for an all-volunteer force. In the mid-2000s, Wong said, infantry marines like me could only see an unending cycle of combat deployments. I was certain that I was going to deploy until I was killed or decided to turn down re-enlistment. Kayla Williams, a senior policy researcher, former assistant secretary at the Department of Veterans Affairs and Iraq War veteran, also emphasized the physical, mental, and emotional toll that the war took on the more than 1.9 million veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. The costs of getting these veterans the care they need, she says, is likely in the trillions of dollars. As for the war's effects on the broader American public, Raphael Cohen, director of RAND Project Air Force's Strategy and Doctrine Program and another Iraq War veteran, said the conflict has left Americans on both the left and the right questioning not only the viability of armed nation-building, but whether the U.S. should be militarily involved abroad at all. You can read insights from Wong, Williams, Cohen, and other RAND experts in an in-depth Q&A on the RAND blog. Chinese President Xi Jinping met with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow this week. A 2021 RAND report provides some context for this visit. The report examined the long history of the China-Russia relationship, which has spanned the full range of interstate relations, from conflict to alliance. Since 2014, China and Russia have become much closer And our study finds that their ties will likely keep growing stronger. Not only do the two countries share a perceived threat from the U.S., but they also benefit from cooperation on key issues, such as Russia selling oil and gas to China. Further, sanctions from the war in Ukraine could make Russia more dependent on China. The report concludes that, absent major changes in U.S. policy, 
there is little the U.S. government or army can or should do to influence the trajectory of China-Russia relations. However, the U.S. can prepare for the results of greater cooperation between Beijing and Moscow. For instance, the U.S. military must be ready to encounter increasingly sophisticated weapon systems as Chinese-Russian military technical cooperation increases. Let's stay with Russia for a moment and discuss a new RAND report on the Russian general staff, which has broad authority to ensure the defense of the Russian state. The Russian general staff is unlike any single organization within the U.S. defense establishment or the U.S. government. A new RAND report looks at this institution's capacity to influence Russia's national security decision-making. The analysis focuses on two recent case studies— fighting in Ukraine from 2014 to 2021, and in Syria from 2015 to 2019. The authors find that Russia's emphasis on secrecy and deniability challenged the Russian general staff's ability to orchestrate its 2014 invasion of Ukraine. In other words, Russia's use of force was not entirely under the general staff's control at the time. The Russian intervention in Syria, by contrast, appears to have been pursued in a manner largely concordant with the general staff's mandated roles and responsibilities. Although the authors did not explicitly examine the Russian general staff's role in the ongoing war in Ukraine, they were able to draw some relevant conclusions. For example, the general staff's tight grip on information and its tendency to treat knowledge as currency— coupled with resistance to military reforms, appear to be at least partly responsible for the Russian military's struggles in Ukraine over the last year. The pandemic continues to have profound effects on society. However, discussions about these lingering impacts often omit the 1.2 million incarcerated adults in federal and state prisons. A new RAND report examines COVID-19 infection rates in U.S. prisons, looks at how correctional facilities responded to mitigate the spread of the disease, and considers the overall effects of COVID-19 on prison education programs. The data revealed two major peaks in the percent of people with COVID-19 infections in the state prison population, one peak in late 2020 and another in the winter of 2022. At these and other times during the pandemic, correctional authorities took steps to prevent the spread of the virus. These included providing face masks to incarcerated individuals and correctional facility staff, implementing quarantine of incarcerated individuals who are symptomatic, and enforcing sick or administrative leave for symptomatic staff. The impact of these mitigation measures on prison education programs was dramatic, Most of the 29 state correctional education directors who responded to our survey reported that instruction in 2020 was either halted or suspended. This was often across different program types, including adult basic education, adult secondary education, vocational education, and college programs. As of early this year, instruction remained halted in one or more prison facilities for all program types. COVID-19 also negatively affected instructional quality. 90% of survey respondents reported short or long-term gaps in instruction and an inability to administer assessments, such as high school equivalency tests and certification exams. 
It's worth noting that the pandemic did help accelerate the adoption of online and hybrid learning models and the use of technology for correctional education programs. According to recent reports, U.S. Indo-Pacific Commander Admiral John Aquilino has said that the U.S. would immediately shoot down any intercontinental ballistic missile fired over the U.S. territory of Guam or into the Pacific region. The Kim regime responded, stating that such an act would be, quote, regarded as a clear declaration of war against the DPRK. Rand's Bruce Bennett, an expert on North Korea, recently clarified this threat. What Pyongyang is saying is that if North Korea lobs an intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, in the direction of the U.S. and its territories, and the U.S. military shoots it down, then this will be regarded by Pyongyang as a U.S. act of war. Even in the realm of North Korea's typical rhetoric, Bennett says, this is extreme. What's behind this line of thinking? North Korea is trying to create a situation in which it can show off an ICBM without U.S. interference. This is part of Kim Jong-un's efforts to demonstrate his regime's power to both internal and external audiences. And if the U.S. were to intercept and destroy a North Korean ICBM, it would seriously undermine these efforts. According to Bennett, the Kim family has, quote, created conditions under which the U.S. may have little choice but to do exactly what Aquilino has promised. At least 18 U.S. states have restricted how teachers can address topics related to race, gender, and other, quote, divisive concepts, as some of these states have called them. A recent RAND study surveyed more than 8,000 teachers about how these restrictions, and the national debate surrounding them, affect how they navigate their classrooms. In a new Q&A, the lead author of that study, Ashley Wu, who is also a former elementary school teacher, discusses the findings and why it's important to amplify teachers' voices on education issues. The survey revealed that teachers' views on this issue vary quite a bit. Many educators were more careful about how they approach topics such as race and gender. Some were trying to find a middle ground and talk about these topics in a way that felt safer to them. Others were outright resistant to the state restrictions. Notably, there was a big difference in how Black or African American teachers experienced these restrictions. In fact, 41% of Black or African American teachers in states that had enacted restrictions said that these policies are influencing their instruction that was much higher than among other teachers. Another key takeaway is the importance of local community engagement. In other words, it's not just state, district, and school leaders. Families and communities play a big role too. Even if the legal, formal restrictions went away tomorrow, Wu says, there would still be pressure on teachers, because a lot of it is coming from communities. Quote, it's really important that we ask how we can continue to bring families into the conversation and do it in a way that is productive and civil and builds on a foundation of trust. Going forward, much of Wu's research will continue to focus on bringing teachers' perspectives into policymaking. Quote, teachers on the ground really do face so many challenges. And so it's important that we highlight their experiences and what they view as potential solutions. That's one way we can try to make the profession feel a little bit more sustainable. 
That's it for our 200th episode. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the topics we discussed in the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you again next week. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis.